because the institution of High Court judge goes back several hundreds of years. Uh, and to be the first person of my heritage to be appointed is a profound honour. But I'm also conscious that being the first carries with it a certain responsibility, mm. uh, not only not to let the side down, as it were, but also in helping others from non-traditional backgrounds to enter the judiciary. Hello and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarland, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. Uh, and as you can probably hear, once again, we are continuing to distance ourselves. So we want to take a second to uh, remind everybody, if you haven't already, we'd love it if you would subscribe to the podcast. You can do that on SoundCloud or on iTunes or on whatever podcast app you might use. And if you have a second, which you do right now, right? Because we're all staying in our homes, it's <laughs> not enough to do. So you have the time, you should go onto iTunes and leave us a review and a rating because that would really help us bump up in the podcast and that would be great. <laughs> so this week, we've got another wonderful conversation as always. Uh, this time with an old friend of Julie's, Aklak Chowdhury, who is currently a British High Court judge. And I, I feel like I don't know if I should call him what you call him, Julie. Do you think that's okay? Yes, go on. That's okay? Okay. So Julie calls him Aki, so I'm going to do the same. Uh, so Aki uh, grew up in Glasgow um, and then did his law degree in London. He was called to the bar in 1992. And most interestingly uh, to our conversation right now, in 2017, he was made Knight Bachelor, becoming the first British, Bangladeshi, and Muslim to be appointed to the High Court of Justice in the UK. Uh, and he also sits now as the president of the Employment Appeal Tribunal. He, so he's a very prestigious person. He certainly is. Um, and he's a, a very old friend. And this was a wonderful opportunity for me to revisit uh, some of those old times, but also find out a little bit more from Aki about uh, what he likes about being a judge and also what it's like being a judge during a pandemic, because we recorded our first conversation at the end of February as this was just beginning to ramp up. And then we recorded a postscript just a couple of weeks ago, uh, where Aki is now um, administering justice from his home office. I have to just say right off the top how much I love his accent. Uh, a Scottish <laughs> accent is always delightful, so you can look forward to that. <laughs> so one of the first things that struck me about this conversation was when Aki mentioned how few um, judges in the UK are people of color. And we've kind of done the math here, and he refers to this, but of the judges in the High Court, the Court of Appeal, and the Supreme Court, there are 159 of them, and only four of those people are people of color, which is a little astounding. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, one of the other things that he said that I really, really liked was that he really likes being a judge. And I just think yeah. that's nice. Like everybody should like what they do. And it's really inspiring to hear him say how much he enjoys, you know, kind of taking in both sides and making a decision 
in order to promote the interests of justice, which is how he phrased it, and I really liked that. Um, I also really liked that he likes the name of our podcast, and that <laughs> you talked to him a little bit about why that's meaningful. Um, and then finally, uh, in your follow-up conversation, of course, you touch on, you know, a theme that has been coming up a lot, both for us in our podcast and our blog, and, you know, we're seeing it all over uh, the justice sector, is this um, idea that the fact that the justice system has been forced to change over the last number of weeks is showing that they can change and yeah. kind of modernize um, and that, you know, in the future, I think it'll be, as as Aki will say, more difficult for the justice system to dismiss um, newer and technical solutions. Um, but one of the things that he pointed out, which is something that we haven't really talked about so far, but is a really interesting point is he has noticed that in video hearings and video conferences, he's seeing that it can actually be a little more difficult for SRLs to speak up than they would in in-person mm -hmm. hearings. And that, you know, in some ways that can have to do with, you know, whether there's an imbalance in the technical capability that they have, if they don't have as strong an internet connection as, you know, the high-priced lawyers on the other side uh, in some cases. Um, but even just the kind of disadvantage of not feeling as comfortable speaking up, because I think we all have had that experience of being in a video conference call, and it takes a certain amount of confidence to kind of yeah. break in. Yeah, and um, we get and used to the true. idea of the delay, don't we, as well? And, yeah. and that's something that I know we're all kind of adapting to. And Aggie's point is that, you know, that might be something that the lawyers on the other side, if it's a self-represented litigant on just one side, might be much more familiar and comfortable with. And he's starting to notice that that might actually disadvantage a self-represented litigant. And he has to be a little bit more proactive about getting them into the conversation. All right. So let's listen to your conversation with Aggie. Hello, Aki. It's Julie. Hi. Oh, Hello, sorry. Aki. I should probably say Mr. Justice Chowdhury. I'm going to have to get used to this. <laughs> you can call me Aki. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, so I think that right at the beginning of this call, um, we need to fess up that um, we've known each other a very long time. And when you and I first met, uh, we were both in a somewhat different position than we are now. I was a very junior law professor and a single mom living in, in London, in Hackney, and you were a law student and a milkman yeah. in your spare time. <laughs> and you were also the lodger in my home. You rented a room in my home, and, well, there are many stories there. Uh, <laughs> but I do want people who are listening to understand that you and I have been friends for a very long time, and that in that time, your life has changed pretty significantly. Um, no longer a law student and a milkman, you are now Sir Aklak Chowdhury, a judge of the High Court of England and Wales, and the president of the Employment Appeal Tribunal. I mean, it's difficult for me to say all this without this big smile on my face, because, <laughs> you know, isn't life interesting? So 
the first thing I want to ask you is back in 1988, when you were a law student and a milkman scraping together your rent, could you have ever imagined how your career was going to pan out? And, and what about all this still surprises you the most? Well, the, the short answer is no, not in a million years. <laughs> I mean, uh, when I was uh, a law student uh, 32 years ago, there were very few senior lawyers from my background, yes. let alone judges. Um, I think you probably recall the first person of colour to be appointed a judge in the UK was uh, His Honour Judge Singh. And he yes. was appointed in 1982, just six years before we met. Right. Uh, and there were certainly no persons of colour in the High Court yep. where I now sit until 2004. Wow. Uh, and even now, you know, 2020, there are only four uh, judges who are from ethnic minority backgrounds in the High Court. Out so, of how many total, Aki? Uh, out of uh, over 108 wow. in the High Court, and if you go all the way up to the Supreme Court, about 160 wow. total. So four. So, yeah, yeah, four. So if, if, if back in 1988 you'd said to me, uh, <laughs> one day you'll be a High Court judge, I, I would have said that you were talking in the realms of fantasy. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't have been realistic at all. Uh, and I, I was just focused at that stage on qualifying as a lawyer and building a career. So uh, that's. But I remember that you also were somebody I knew right from the very beginning was always looking for um, perspectives and ideas and experiences that were outside of your own. Um, and one of the things that I remember in that regard was you told me many years later you used to come upstairs to the bookcases in the sitting room after myself and, and Sybil, my daughter, had gone to bed, and you systematically worked your way through my bookshelf of feminist literature. Is that right? That, that, that is right. <laughs> I think <laughs> up to then, my, my exposure to literature had been fairly narrow. Uh, I'd read a lot of... Um, educational books and science textbooks. My background was in science before I came yes. to law. And so coming down to London, having just left home and uh, being dropped into this big bad world yes. uh, was a real eye-opener for me. And seeing all these books by writers that I'd never heard of uh, looked very interesting. And I thought, well, the best way to find out a bit more is to read them. And I, and I did start, start reading some of them. <laughs> well, I, love, I love that story. It's so much you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit now, shall we, about um, self-represented litigants. And, you know, you and I have had a number of discussions over the years about this, of course. Um, pro se litigants or litigants in person, as they tend to be called, in the UK and you know just as in Canada and the US you are seeing unprecedented numbers um, huge numbers of people who are navigating the legal system and appearing in court alone and obviously as a judge first in the criminal court now in the high court and at the employment appeal tribunal you see self-represented litigants so I want to ask you first a practical and then a more philosophical question about this Practically, Aki, what do you see as the most important thing you can do as a judge to enable self-represented litigants to meaningfully participate in those legal processes that you preside over? 
I think uh, um, the most important thing a judge can do is to communicate clearly. In the Employment Appeal Tribunal where I sit, we now have probably more than half of our litigants uh, appearing in person or self-represented. Wow. And what you notice is that uh, uh, there's a lot of fear, a lot of nervousness. And mm. appearing in court, I think it's frightening enough, with, even with representation, when you're yes. self-represented, the nerves and fear can be overwhelming. And it can affect the ability to follow proceedings, no matter how intelligent and switched on you might be. Yeah. And I think if the judge then starts speaking in highly technical legal jargon, um, without any attempt to clarify what's meant, then mm. communication is likely to be very poor. Um, none of that means that judges uh, need to talk down to litigants, and I think that would be a very bad thing. But yeah. all, all that's required is a bit of clarity. Uh, I think I often find, particularly preliminary hearings, I'm not sure what they're called in Canada, but uh, hearings before the full trial. Yes. Yeah, litigants are often unclear as to the purpose of such hearings. Oh, very they're much sure so. What, we yeah, hear that all sure the time. Yeah, they're not sure whether they're there to argue the whole case or just deal with some procedural aspect. And I find, as a judge, it's very useful to lay out exactly what the purpose of the hearing is at the start. Right. Tell the uh, people present what's going to happen and what my role is in the proceedings. And that usually, I find, puts self-represented litigants at ease uh, because they then know what to expect and they're not taken by surprise. Right. Um, so that, that's, a, based on experience, that's what I think is, is important. Well, and what I notice about that, what you just said, Aki, is there are two dimensions. One is giving people information in a clear way, uh, and as you say, not speaking down to them, but setting it out in a clear way so that somebody unfamiliar with it would be able, you know, to, to be, you know, up to speed. But secondly, you're talking to self-represented litigants um, as human beings and as important participants. And I certainly know from my work with self-reps that that recognition of them is also very important. So. Can I ask you secondly then on a more of a policy level, um, because this is a huge change for the role of judges, of course, uh, and for some judges who've been on the bench for a while, um, the adjustment to, to meeting and to dealing with self-reps every day is a huge one. So what do you think is most important for the judiciary to understand about their changing role to meet this challenge? Well, the, the, the number of self-represented litigants, as you say, is, is growing. And it's a, a reality now of the legal landscape. And that presents, I think, challenges for judges, but also opportunities. Uh, the challenges are that judges have to do more work in explaining what is going on. Mm. They have to take things at a pace suitable for the litigant within reason. And they have to take a bit more time to understand the case that's being presented, because often it will be presented in a slightly unclear or disjointed fashion, or, or in a way which the judge is not used to. Right, um, they'll have to work harder to see the They'll narrow. have to work harder, yeah. yeah. And if the judges take the view that this is a huge and unwelcome burden, then uh, not only will the judge stop enjoying what they do, 
but they'll also convey, I think, a negative attitude to those appearing in front of them. Yeah. And that would be contrary to the interests of justice. So if, if judges accept uh, that self-represented litigants are now an important part of the judicial landscape or justice landscape, uh, they will have to adjust accordingly. And if we don't do so, or if you only do so begrudgingly, then justice will suffer. So uh, I think, I think that, that is something that judges have to um, make sure that they understand and tackle in a positive way. Yep, self-represented litigants are here to stay uh, until we figure out a way to give people access to affordable representation in, in, a, in a different way, and that's a challenge, of course, in the UK, just as it is here. Yeah. So changing tack a little bit, Aki, um, you know, as we talked a bit about this earlier in our conversation, um, that as a representative of your community, you're the first Bengali Brit to become a judge of the High Court, for which I know you have been honored in, in Bangladesh. Uh, and I also happen to know that your mom is very, very proud of you. <laughs> uh, but I'm also interested in what it means for you that you're the first representative of this community to hold this position. And you and I have talked a little bit over the years about this. And, and I know that this is not straightforward uh, because you are both representative of your community, but you're also British. So tell yeah. me what it means for you to hold this position um, and, and, and to do the work that you do as somebody from the Bengali community in, in Scotland. Well, it's, it's an immense honor and privilege to hold that position. And I don't say that lightly because the institution of high court judge goes back several hundreds of years. Uh, and to be the first person of my heritage to be appointed is a profound honor. But I'm also conscious that being the first carries with it a certain responsibility, mm. uh, not only not to let the side down, as it were, but also in helping others from non-traditional backgrounds to enter the judiciary. Um, I think it's an important part of my role to engage with lawyers from all backgrounds, mm. to tell them what uh, a great job this is and then to encourage them to apply. Uh, as we were discussing earlier, uh, what the position was back in 1988, I wouldn't want uh, young ethnic minority lawyers to feel the way I did back in 1988, mm. that becoming high court judges would be impossible. Yeah, yeah. dream. Uh, and I can do that, I think, by speaking to them, letting them know that I'm just like them, and that if I can do it, so can they. And <laughs> that, I see, is an important part of my job now. Now, you've said this a couple of times, and of course you've said this to me many times, you really like being a judge. Tell me what you, you really yeah. like about being a judge. I really like making a decision. I think after nearly 27 years at the bar arguing for one side or the other, mm. uh, it's immensely satisfying now to be able to step back, listen to the arguments on both sides and make a decision. And you feel very satisfied if you make a decision which you think is uh, just and fair 
and it promotes the interests of justice. If you feel you've done something uh, satisfactory or worthwhile, obviously in every case that you do, one party will be disappointed. Disappointed, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I think so long as you feel that you've applied the law in a fair and uh, just manner, then you can't feel bad about doing that. (laughs) So one of the issues that we're talking a lot about here in Canada at the moment, um, and I imagine this is happening in the UK also, is what is the appropriate public role of judges? Because as we know, historically judges have been kept very much under wraps. You know, they weren't doing podcasts. (laughs) Uh, and, And also, you know, more broadly, until relatively recently, we didn't see judges talking a lot in a public-facing way. Um, they might speak to um, groups of other judges or lawyers, and increasingly we're seeing judges take on a more, a more public role. Uh, now, obviously, this is not about judges being political or partisan, but because there's increasingly this focus on the justice system and the lack of access to justice for many ordinary people. I think that is beginning to change how some judges feel about speaking with the public and working, for example, with public legal education organizations and so forth. So I'd love to know a bit about what your own personal take is on this, Aki, and how you might see your your role as a judge in, in the public sphere. I, I think this is important. It's important for judges to engage uh, with the community that it serves. Uh, an effective justice system is one that is respected and understood by the public. I think the name of this podcast, um, Jumping Off the Ivory Tower, puts it quite eloquent, eloquently. 21st century is not a time for a remote and inaccessible judiciary. Mm that seem to be far removed from everyday life. I think judges need to communicate more about what they do and how they do it. And the more people understand what judges do, the more likely they are to respect it and have confidence in what um, the judiciary stands for. Uh, Part part of that is uh, having a diverse judiciary. If you have a diverse Mm. community, um, then having a diverse judiciary instills confidence that uh, the judiciary will understand the needs of the community that it serves. And part of that is also engaging, uh, as you mentioned, with legal uh, and educational organizations. Yes. Communicating what we do. Uh, I probably, on a personal level, I probably draw the line at tweeting regularly (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about uh, what we do. Uh, there's always a danger with tweets that uh, you may, uh, as a judge, express a view on a matter of controversy or yeah. political sensitivity. And not not because there's any secrecy about those things, but because it may impact on your impartiality or yeah. you may not be seen to be as impartial about things as you should. But, but speaking and engaging um, in, 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 a, in a direct way is, is useful. I mean, taking that another step further, Aki, I mean, there's, there's so much discussion, of course, in, in this country and in the UK at the moment 
about ways in which the justice system needs to adapt to the change, you know, the growing number of self-represented litigants, but also starting to incorporate more technologies, so forth. Um, do you see judges as being part of that conversation as well? I do. Uh, there's a lot of work being done here in the UK on in improving and increasing the technology that's used in the courtrooms and also in dealing with preliminaries, like getting papers and bundles together for hearings. Uh, there will come a stage, I think, in the not-too-distant future where uh, court hearings and all the preliminaries leading up to them will be largely paperless, uh, and that will be a good thing. Um, as long as people have access to the technology, they should find right. that justice is more accessible as well. Uh, the Skype hearings are increasingly uh, occurring. Hmm. You're uh, doing those, yeah? Yeah, we're doing those sometimes. Um, people with disabilities who uh, can um, justify having hearings by telephone right. instead of uh, in person. Being physically present, yeah. Yeah, yeah. All those kinds of things are accommodated and uh, the judiciary and judges need to be more flexible uh, to cater to the diverse needs of the community. Well, I think that you represent that in your values as well as in your, your person, Aki. And I have to say in closing that uh, when I received that phone call from a soft-spoken, Scottish-accented young man who was a law student all those years ago, I had no idea that this would turn into a lifelong friendship, and I'm very happy and honored that that's the case. So I'll talk to you soon, and thank you for today. Thank you. Take care. Morning, Aki. How are you? Or I should say good afternoon. I'm sorry. So I really appreciate you being willing to record this postscript with me because, of course, the world has changed pretty dramatically since we recorded your original interview. Uh, And I just wanted to check back in with you um, and ask you a couple of things about how uh, the the changes in the justice system, which, of course, you're living in the middle of, were working for you and what your thoughts are about that. So let's just begin with what do you think we're learning as a result of the COVID crisis about how the justice system can adapt and change to a national emergency like this one? I think the main thing we've learned is that the justice system can adapt and change. Uh, The justice systems are often steeped in long-standing traditions and conventions that have lasted many years and often the uptake of technological solutions has been slow but that's all changed very dramatically in a short space of time. I think the choice for senior judges was either to halt the justice system entirely Mm. during the lockdown or to use technology to continue to provide access to justice and I think most jurisdictions certainly in the UK have chosen the latter route. And for the most part, it seems to have worked quite well. Um, Is this the push that people needed to to maybe when they were a little bit resistant 
to using a technology and, and so used to those physical appearances? Do you think this is helping to give people a little bit of a push about that? I, th- I think it is. I think people are realizing that it can work. A lot of the resistance to introducing technology or diminish the authority of the court in some way, or, or that it simply wouldn't work. But uh, having experimented and trialed some of these systems in the last few weeks, uh, it's clear that they can work, not for all purposes, uh, but they can work for many types of hearing that are conducted. So tell me what it's like for you doing this. I know you you, you told me you're doing um, some video conference hearings in both the High Court and the Employment Appeal Tribunal. Uh, You know, what's different? Uh, What's the same? What's challenging for you as the judge? Well, the main difference, obviously, is the environment in which you're working. And because we're sitting at home, Mm. um, it's slightly more difficult to create the atmosphere that's conducive to a court hearing. Uh, There's no uh, rising when the the judge enters the room, you just sit and press a button and you're there. Right. And your face appears in in large uh, view on the screen. Um, It's also a little bit more difficult to control proceedings because you can only really hear one person at a time. And if you Mm. interrupt a person who's speaking, uh, they may not register that you have tried to interrupt them uh, until you finish what they're saying. But those are minor things which don't take long to adjust to. And by and large, it has worked pretty well, I think. So you you talked about, you know, as as you say, there's there's sort of no build-up. You're just suddenly there. Um, And, you know, it strikes me that a lot of what we're used to, of course, creating the sense of authority of the courtroom and the judge um, is theatrical, um, you know, yes. if I can call it that. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I'm sure that you managed to create that sense of gravitas and, you know, both listening and, and speaking. Do you, do you have any thoughts about how this might look into the future? I mean, do you think people are going to want to go back to the physical, theatrical place, or are they going to be willing to move forward with, with using uh, remote distance hearings, which of course for some people, especially people with disabilities or who people who have a long way to travel or to, for whom it would greatly add to the cost uh, in terms of the time they need to take away from work, it would be much preferable for them to be able to do this by remote link. I think, I think it would be much harder in future to resist technological solutions out of hand. Um, previously, telephone hearings are quite rare, and video hearings are rarer still. Mm. And it's becoming increasingly more common for applications to be made by those with difficulties in getting to the courtroom for right. disability or finance. Um, uh, but they're still the exception, aren't they, rather than the rule? And I'm wondering if we're going yeah. to see the reverse of that when this is all done. Well, now that in many cases you know that the technology is there and it's been tried and tested, albeit in, in, in a crisis situation, um, to enable remote hearings, there's likely to be more flexibility about how hearings are carried out. Uh, and I don't think it would be beneficial for the pendulum to swing too far Mm-hmm. Um, many hearings are still better heard in court. Uh, for, for example, those words with witness evidence being given, 
And that, that I think, is particularly difficult to to address at the moment through the new link, although it can be done, and it is done in some cases, but it's still preferable for that to be done in person, as it were. But for many other types of hearings, particularly where it's applications or submissions from either party, um, if there's a need for a person not to attend the hearing, then it would be much harder to resist right. a technological solution. Having actually been able to do it. Well, one of the things I've found is that some meetings uh, in person have been a bit resistant, surprisingly perhaps, mm-hmm. to, to uh, remote hearings because there's a certain lack of trust um, yeah. that the system will work in a way which is fair to them. And you can understand that if, if, if a person yes. has yes. Uh, an internet connection which isn't as good or a computer system which is slightly lacking and they're up against a big firm with the latest in technology, yes. there may be a feeling that there is a slight inequality of arms, that they may, may be at a slight disadvantage, or that the parties will simply exclude them in some way and um, decide the matter in their absence. Right, they're going to feel that, that, more confident if they're actually in person that they're going to get their, their 10 cents in. Yes, that's right. If, if mm. they're there in person, there's a sense that well, whatever happens, I can speak up and I will be heard. Right. And with the remoteness of a video connection, there's that slight distancing, which means that particularly if you're nervous or lacking in confidence, uh, that may be more difficult to do. Judges, as far as I'm aware, might will do their best to ensure that the hearing is as fair as possible. Mm. Uh, and uh, we'll make alliances for the fact that one person's technological connection might not be as good. Or if it comes down to uh, a full in-person hearing, maybe what's necessary. Well, that's really interesting because we've heard a lot in the last few weeks about how much better this would be for many self-represented litigants. And I think it would be in many ways in terms of saving costs of actually going to court. Uh, but on the other hand, as you say, there are some, there are some drawbacks as well, and we've got, we've got to start thinking about all of these different pieces. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this, Aki, to do a follow-up with me, and I hope that I'll talk to you again soon. You take Thank care you. now. Thank you. Bye for now. Bye for now. In other news. Welcome back to the In Other News segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. We hope all of our listeners are healthy and safe. For our first update, NSRLP has added to our list of resources since our last podcast. Last time, we mentioned our page on court closure updates, our page on protocols for affidavits and notarizing, a resource with template clauses on social distancing undertakings that could be modified and used by co-parents during the pandemic, recorded webinars for SRLs with Julie, Aisha Amjad, and Georgette McCool, a list of provincial legal helplines and COVID-19 resources and supports for SRLs, and a list of access to justice and social justice-themed entertainment. We've added a couple more resources to that list. First, we compiled a list of free online legal educational content. This is a great resource that was requested by so many SRLs. We know a lot of people are trying to find ways to be productive during this time, and we hope this list comes in handy. 
The resources are organized by province, but a lot of the resources are helpful regardless of location. Of course, you could also check out our own legal education content, which can be found under the SRL Resources tab of our website. Our next resource was a follow-up to a webinar, and is a blog post all about the term urgent. Most courts are only hearing urgent applications, and we've seen a lot of questions about this term and the general idea. Family lawyer Hannah Jijong and NSRLP research assistant Kelsey have compiled this useful document summarizing what makes a matter urgent and how to request an urgent hearing in Ontario and British Columbia. Finally, we've decided to revamp our list of Access to Justice All-Stars. We want to showcase some of the incredible work A2J advocates from across the country are doing to make a difference, particularly during the pandemic. Our first new All-Star is Wayne Barkowskis, who has been doing some great work for the public, particularly during the pandemic. Stay tuned for more All-Stars in the coming weeks, and please let us know if there's someone you'd like to nominate. You can reach us at representingyourself at gmail.com. All of these resources are available under the News tab of our website, under the COVID-19 Resources subheading. We also have a new blog post written by Julie and lawyer and mediator Tanya Perlin discussing mediation in uncertain times. This is a helpful read on resources, reevaluating conflict, and why parties should consider mediation. For our second update, we're proud to announce that Julie will be a member of British Columbia's new cross-jurisdictional technical advisory group, supporting the Ministry of the Attorney General respond to the impact of COVID-19 on the justice system. She'll be working alongside some famous names in the legal tech and legal innovation arenas, including Shannon Salter, who was our guest on the previous podcast episode, former Supreme Court Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin, former Supreme Court Justice Thomas Cromwell, Richard Siskind, author of the book Online Courts that we've mentioned on this podcast a couple of times, and a number of other experts who have just as impressive bios. We're excited to see how British Columbia develops their response, and we're grateful that Julie, the NSRLP, and SRLs themselves will play a role. Here's a quick rundown of some other news articles from this past week. First, Supreme Court Justice Rosalia Bella spoke about designing a whole new way to deliver justice to ordinary people with ordinary disputes and ordinary bank accounts. She also discussed the need for real access to justice and ensuring people can believe in the legal system to provide justice. Similarly, British Columbia Attorney General David Eby recently spoke about how this crisis has been eye-opening for those who previously did have access to the justice system, showing them what it was like for those who haven't had access. Both pieces discuss bringing the practice of law into the 21st century and are worth a look. Lastly, we also wanted to share a piece of non-COVID news. There was a major decision from the Ontario Court of Appeal recently on the role of the trial judge and counsel where one party is self-represented. The case discusses the appalling treatment of an SRL during, quote, a mocking and belittling cross-examination, unquote, while, quote, the trial judge did nothing. This is an important decision that affirms that a trial judge is responsible for controlling proceedings to ensure trial fairness. We know that there is a lot going on in COVID-related news, but this particular decision shouldn't slip through the cracks. We'll be working on a short piece about this case in the future, so keep an eye out for that. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation. 